But in order to covenanting, we're dealing with the Psalm League and Covenant. This is the seventh part. Uh, so we're looking at Article 6. Fourth term of communion that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. But the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. <coughs> so we're going to be looking at what is really the, the last article uh, there will be one more week we'll be looking at the Solemn League, which will be the conclusion of the Solemn League. But the sixth article uh, has to do with a lot of <clears throat> questions regarding the attitude and the, um, the general bearing that we are called to have as a result of, of prosecuting the end of the covenant. <clears throat> so we're going to be looking at a number of things <coughs> with respect to um, how we are to approach obligations that are um, binding and we're going to be looking at some different issues uh, like whether or not it's permitted to make defection from the covenanted cause. And, you know, the short answer is no, and we'll get into that in, in a few minutes. But um, uh, these, are, these are some of the things that they're, they're trying to head off. Uh, they're really... You're going to always have people who, um, <clears throat> after vows, make inquiry. And they, they should have been looking before that. Uh, the fact is that this was well, uh, the, the whole Southern League was very well thought out, very well uh, hashed out theologically and practically. And when, they, when they took it, they took it knowing what they were getting themselves into. And uh, like any lawful oath or vow, <clears throat> there should be a reasonable prospect of attaining the end that is contemplated when you take it. Right? You shouldn't be taking an oath or a vow to do something which is uh, by all means that you have before you impossible. Uh, so it's, it's important to understand <clears throat> as we're reading through a lot of this and we're thinking about the, the, the issues. When this was taken, it was eminently doable. <clears throat> there was nothing, um, there's nothing in what they were pledging themselves to do that you would look at and, and say to yourself, well, that is an extraordinary thing that they're being called to do. Right? Because there really isn't anything extraordinary. Everything is actually well within the realm of, of possibility 
with respect to church and state. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking about uh, the situation on uh, when, we, when we deal with descending obligation and, and uh, renewal of covenant, uh, how that's undertaken when these kinds of circumstances change, <clears throat> particularly when they change uh, for the worse, right? It's, it's gotten worse. And this is not the kind of covenant that you can imagine being taken by national parties in church or state now. Uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't lawful when they did it, and once they've done it, it's binding <coughs> on themselves and their descendants. And, and let me just say, it's sort of like this. <clears throat> you should never undertake a debt that you have no reasonable means of repaying. Right? You should never uh, sign up for that. It's frankly, uh, in I think um, Japan now they have hundred-year mortgages. Right, uh, it's really quite ridiculous for people to undertake something like that. The prospect of you living long enough to pay off that mortgage, uh, being able to work long enough to pay off that mortgage, is uh, probably uh, about nil. <coughs> Nonetheless, when you do undertake a debt, and even in that case, uh, those mortgages get passed on to the um, to the other to, to like the children of these people. Uh, they they have a descending obligation. Uh, you should. It's unwise. It's it's unwarranted. It's, in fact, uh, in some sense, unlawful <clears throat> to undertake an engagement that you cannot fulfill. On the other hand, and, and, and actually, let me just, uh, so for example, on that, if you were to read Calvin's ecclesiastical advice, <clears throat> Protestants, like Romanists, uh, on this one, they um, they said if impotency was discovered after marriage, because there would have been no way of discovering it prior to marriage, that that is sufficient to um, to dissolve the marital bond, because there is um, there is an impediment to fulfilling the one of the main ends for marriage, which is procreation. Um, <clears throat> that's different from other issues where people are, they're not necessarily impotent but they're in some sense sterile um, anyway there are there were um, uh, it was looked at as, as undertaking a, a vow that you know in that case would have been had we known it would have been unlawful to undertake and in fact, because of the nature of the vow, it would have voided the vow, right? So it would have, it would have not only been unlawful, but it would have been invalid. And the invalidity, which is demonstrated by impotency, negates that marital vow. 
on the other hand, when it is undertaken lawfully and the, um, there, there's no inherent disability for keeping such a vow or an oath or covenant, there is nothing to argue and, and invalidate it. So, while it would be an unlawful vow for us to undertake in this present day and age as they did then, and again, we're going to talk about this when we get into covenant renewal, <clears throat> it would also... Um, there, there would be something invalid if we are claiming to be sort of the national party um, in church or state <clears throat> undertaking on behalf of this. Right? Because we don't occupy that position with regard to our place and station. And again, we'll expand on this more when we get to descending obligation. However, having been taken lawfully and in a context where there is no ground for declaring any kind of invalidity, this bond is a bond which has had obligation on the original covenanters and their descendants. And again, the, the prospect of, of this, or the, uh, the uh, defense of descending obligation is something we're going to deal with separately. So, what we're talking about here <clears throat> is a, a lot of what we're going to be talking about in the sixth article is this idea of after vows to make inquiry. That is, uh, we've, we've gone so far, we've taken the vow, but we've decided for various and sundry reasons that it's inconvenient distasteful um, perhaps in some sense <clears throat> uh, too much trouble to prosecute the ends and while we're, we're looking at it we're going to be looking at it in terms of the original covenanters everything we say and, and we have been saying is applicable to us with respect to our place and stations. Now, we're going to qualify all that we've said about the National Covenant, the Solemn Lincoln Covenant. When we talk about descending obligation, we're going to begin to qualify it, and we'll further qualify it uh, when we talk about the nature of the covenant renewal that was done at Arkansas and why. Why the Covenanters renewed covenants the way that they did, uh, after the manner that they did is very different from, say, the uh, seceder idea. And I'll, I'll try to remember to discuss that in more detail when we get there, because uh, this issue of covenanting and how we, particularly how we renew covenants and the applicability of these covenants and, and the duty of the church uh, to see that these standards are applied not only to the church but to the magistrate, the civil magistrate. Those are the two big points of contention uh, that kept the seceders from joining with the, the uh, early covenanters and um, they remain 
points of distinction and points of controversy for anybody, I think, who's familiar with uh, these, these things. The Free Church continuing, for example, they profess to hold to these covenants, but their ideals are much more along the lines of the secession rather than the covenanters. And again, I, I will try to get into some of that uh, in coming weeks as we begin to undertake uh, making clear what our position is on this. So, we, we're going to be talking about, and, and it's really a lot of, of propositions that are laid out in the sixth article. Uh, it's almost a series of, of counsels for covenant keeping. Let me read the sixth article. Uh, we shall also, according to our places and callings, in this common cause of religion, liberty, and peace of the kingdoms, assist and defend all those that enter into this league and covenant in the maintaining and pursuing thereof, and shall not suffer ourselves directly or indirectly by whatsoever combination, persuasion, or terror, be divided and withdrawn from this blessed union in conjunction, whether to make defection to the contrary part, or to give ourselves to a detestable indifference or neutrality in this cause. <clears throat> Which so much concerneth the glory of God, the good of the kingdom, and the and honor of the king. But shall all the days of our lives zealously and constantly continue therein against all opposition and promote the same according to our power against all lets, by which they mean hindrances and impediments whatsoever, and what we are not able ourselves to suppress or overcome, we shall reveal and make known that it may be timely prevented or removed, all which we shall do is in the sight of God. <clears throat> so, um, we're going to begin with this idea of assisting and defending, and then we'll start to talk about uh, some of the possible uh, avenues of backsliding or apostatizing that seem to suggest themselves and then we'll move back into more of some of the positives right what we should do so that we don't go down the paths of backsliding or apostasy <coughs> and then we'll uh, finish with a few concluding remarks on some of the things that are that are noted here so question one Is it the duty of those in covenant to assist and defend one another in the common cause? And the answer is yes. We're going to begin looking at 1 Samuel 20, verses 8 to 17. 1 Samuel 20, verses 8 through 17. Therefore thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant, for thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee. Notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me thyself. For why shouldest thou bring me to thy father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from thee, 
For if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, then would not I tell it thee? Then said David to Jonathan, Who shall tell me, or what, if thy father answer thee roughly? And Jonathan said unto David, Come, and let us go out into the field. And they went out, both of them, into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded when I have sounded my father about tomorrow any time, or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and then I send it not unto thee, and show thee, the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do the evil, then I will show it thee, and send thee away, that thou mayest go in peace, and the Lord be with thee, as he hath been with my father. And thou shalt not only, while yet I live, show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off my kindness, from my house forever. Uh, thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, But the Lord even required at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again, because he loved him, <coughs> for he loved him as he loved his own soul. <clears throat> so, what is going on in covenanting? Uh, between the parties who are involved is in fact a joining a union and a communion that in fact um, really requires that there be a, a mutual assistance and defense for a common cause. The covenant is aimed at some common interest, right? some common concern. In the most <clears throat> basic covenant in human society is marriage. There's a joining uh, such that the two people who are married become, as it were, one flesh. Uh, a different kind of union that's going on. There's a different end in view. Um, at least at some level, there's the idea of procreation is involved here. But there is, with the, the procreation is really taking place in the context of a covenant, which is about a common cause. Mutual assistance, mutual defense, and so on. So it's a great purpose and end of covenants and covenanting between men. They enlist themselves in mutual defense and help of one another. We'll look at Genesis 14, 1 to 4, and then look at Isaiah 41, 5, and 6. Genesis 14, verses 1 to 4. <clears throat> and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedarlaomer, king of Eid, Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemember, king of Seboyim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the vale of Sidim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedarlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Isaiah 41, verses 5 and 6. The isles saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. Drew near and came. They helped everyone, his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. 
<clears throat> so when there's covenanting going on between men, there is implied in that a common interest, common cause, as well as the idea that there'll be a mutual assisting to meet that common interest, common cause, and a defense in some respect of one another in meeting that common interest or common cause. Now, this is exactly why uh, when we talk about theology, right, the, the idea that God has entered into covenant with us in Christ, that's exactly what he's done. He's made common cause with mankind by assuming our nature, uh, by um, undertaking on our behalf for us and for our sin. He's assumed common cause. He, he has a common interest that, the, that humanity will in fact be redeemed, that it won't all uh, it finally stand under the condemnation of God. Right? So there's a commonality there. And that commonality on the part of Christ, basically, uh, he commits himself to assist and defend us. <clears throat> and in, in, to the extent that all of these covenants that we're talking about, we're taking hold of that covenant of grace, we're doing the same with respect to Christ. Right? We are pledging, according to our, uh, our places and callings, we are pledging ourselves to undertake for the common cause that is his. Just as he's undertaken for the common cause that is ours. Uh, it turns out that in, in covenant, our cause becomes his cause and his cause becomes our cause, right? And so that's what's going on. There is this undertaking. And so it's for this very reason that God forbade his people from making such covenants with the heathen nations around them. The Judges 2.2. 2. Judges 2, verse 2. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Yeah, so I've, I've talked about this um, I, I did, a, I think, several lectures on voluntary associations, and uh, we've, we've talked about it in other contexts as well. There, there are, and George Gillespie points this out in his miscellaneous questions, uh, there are three main types of covenants. There are those covenants which are religious, there are those covenants which are uh, civil, and those which are mixed. Uh, they're civil religious. And the people of God are absolutely prohibited from entering into covenant with the heathen when there's either when it's either religious or mixed covenant. Right? We are allowed to enter into civil, purely civil, and when I say purely civil, civil contracts we can add, enter into with them. Uh, you know, where we're going to accomplish, we're going to do this work and they're going to pay us that much, that sort of thing. Uh, we are permitted those kinds of covenants, civil covenants, right? the sale of a house or something of that nature. It's a civil covenant. Uh, that's permissible. 
the moment it, it becomes mixed or religious, it is impermissible. And that's why we can't be involved not only with churches that are in violation of these standards, but with nations, because nations are not simply civil um, civil institutions without any reference, despite you know post enlightenment ideals, without any reference to religion. Like they they're all inherently religious. Right? The <clears throat> the fact is. <clears throat> We don't want uh, we don't want Christians participating in paganism, right? Religious paganism. Uh, civil commerce is one thing, but the moment that cultural, uh, which is an expression of the religion, the moment that begins to bleed into it, there's a problem. Now you, you should understand that that um, when when we talk about when we talk about um, this question, in order to really get a sense of why this is an issue, uh, we don't want to be Christians who are trying to work in a pagan society or in an. In you know in a, in an unbelieving state, we want the state to be Christian. Right? That's the demands that Christ has laid upon them: kiss the son, lest they perish from the way. Right? That's the command on kings everywhere. They have to kiss the son. So <clears throat> there there is this issue, uh, and talking to a couple of different people in the last week, uh, I I just want to bring this out because this is a pretty good place to talk about this a little bit when we talk about common cause. There is this <clears throat> doctrine that has been perverted um, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's called common grace. And um, This really goes back to the 19th century, the Dutch churches, and it's been adopted by a, a lot of English-speaking Presbyterians. Uh, but Abraham Kuyper is one of the big shapers of this, and he wrote three massive volumes, which are finally being translated into English, on this topic of common grace. Um, but his, his views on common grace are that there's some grace that remains in the fallen world that is common to unbelievers and believers. And that we can work with unbelievers on the basis of that. And I'm going to tell you right now that's a false point of view. All right? If you want to understand the analogy from the Bible, there are elect people and there are reprobate people. Not all Israel is of Israel. But in Israel, in the Old Testament, Israel, think of Israel, is the realm of common grace. There's an outward administration of the covenant of grace. Everyone in Israel is within the outward administration of this covenant of grace, and they experience common grace. This is why the Apostle says, there are those of you who've tasted of the good gifts and drawn back, and you cannot be saved. 
Right? They're, those are people who were within the realm of common grace. But if you were outside of Israel, in any of the Gentile nations, there is no grace there. There's no possibility of salvation. There's no possibility of working with those people. Right? That's If they want to be saved, they have to come to Israel. Under the New Testament, Israel is going to them. But they still have to come under this kingdom of God. They have to submit to the scepter of the kingdom of God like Israel of old. Once they do that, we can work with them. You see, even the reprobate do benefit when they're under that rule because they get to live in a much more orderly society and they get to hear the truth. And we can have common cause in that sense. Right? Because the culture in that society will be shaped by the true religion. And so there will be a place of common cause. But if you don't have that, there is no ground for common cause whatsoever. This is why the, the Jews of old were prohibited from making covenants with the heathen around them. I mean, syncretism in religion doesn't work and syncretism when we're talking about religion and the civil realm don't work right? we can't cut the difference between you know what is the true religion and what they believe that's the enlightenment idea of authoritative toleration which is an idea that quite simply needs to die if we're ever going to see a revival so, <clears throat> common cause, they can have common cause at this time, can't they? Uh, they can have common cause precisely because there's an outward administration of the covenant of grace in Britain and throughout the British Empire. Not everyone is elect, but even the non-elect are being constrained by the religion of the elect, the true religion. And they're being blessed by it and for it. Right? So that's why within this system we are to assist and defend one another in common cause. But that's also why we cannot engage. You have to understand the Constitution of the United States, for example, is a civil, it's, it's, it's not just a civil, it's a religious covenant. Right? It, it is, in fact, um, in enshrining the views of the um, the majority religion of the land, and we cannot have common cause with them in that. It doesn't matter that sometimes you know they do this or that, and you and you want to clap for them. You know that's uh, that's a natural human. Uh, reaction, right? You don't like to see people do the wrong thing. But there really isn't any common cause outside of the true profession of the true religion. That said, let's move on to question two. <clears throat> May we suffer ourselves to be withdrawn from covenant union for any cause? The answer is no. We'll look first at Romans one thirty one. Romans 131, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, 
implacable, unmerciful. Yeah, you need to keep in mind that um, covenant breaking is one of those things that Paul lists as as an an unnatural offense. Right there was sodomy, believe it or not. Um, And if you want to understand why covenant breaking nations uh, like our nation uh, end up with sodomites running all over the place uh, without any check, it's all a continuum of the unnaturalness of what has happened. Retreating from the true religion is unnatural. It's counted a great and degrading sin, particularly against the third and ninth commandments when men break covenant. 2 Timothy 3, 3. 2 Timothy 3, verse 3. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Yeah, so we say, you know, we have to look at the third commandment and the ninth commandments as being particularly in view. Why? What's the third commandment? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. All religious oath-taking. You know, people who don't see the point of covenanting, um, you, you have to wonder what they, what they thought that third commandment was really about. The third commandment is, in fact, uh, as, as we've talked about in the past, and, but it's, it's notable here again, the third commandment is all about covenanting. It's not just a matter of going out and using God's name as a curse word. Whatever the, the, the reason that's a problem is it's an oath. It's a profane oath. Right? What you're doing is you're using the name of God to make common cause with the devil. In the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. You know, that that's really the, the outworking, isn't it, of the, the breach of the third commandment is the uh, violation of the ninth commandment. You know, when you don't, when you have no regard or fear of God in a society, <coughs> then it's quite natural that there's not going to be any regard for the truth amongst one another. Uh, and, and truth is something which is not just what you say, it's what you do. Right? When you say you're going to do something, you do it. When you you know, promise you're going to do this or that, you have to go through, you have to follow through. It's not always pleasant, but you still have to do it. <clears throat> so it's a great and degrading sin. It's unnatural. And, and, and as Paul points out in Romans 1, and then in 2 Timothy 3, he listed in, in a catalog of other great and egregious sins. And here again, I would just say, for people who think that covenanting was this Old Testament moral uh, thing to do, that the... Um, uh, when you break, when you break covenant, when you um, depart from the way, right? 
it's not morality. Natural morality is not simply a matter pertaining to uh, Moses. This is something which pertains to all men at all times in all places. And again, this is this the controlling commandment with respect to truce breaking or covenant breaking is is um, uh, the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You know this is not even even the. Um, the crazy new covenant theologians, as they call themselves, these these wacko Baptists who who have a total disregard for the fourth commandment, uh, they they think there are only nine commandments. I haven't heard them backpedal yet on commandment number three. All right. If they heard me talk about it, they might. And they probably don't because they don't really understand what it is or what it really entails. Frankly, if they did, they wouldn't be Baptists. They would be Presbyterians. <clears throat> They'd be Reformed. And, and you know, Baptists are not Reformed, even if they hold to certain Calvinistic doctrines. Right? Don't ever be confused about that. If somebody tells you they're Reformed Baptist, you can laugh up your sleeve at them. They're not Reformed. And they might they might believe in the five points of Calvinism, but they're not Reformed. Right. There's great peace in the maintenance of a covenant relation. First Kings five twelve. First thing first Kings five verse twelve, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and they two made a league together. Yeah, so the end of, of covenant relation, right, when you're when you are seeking common cause, there's peace. Well, we can do that economically, for example, right? We can do that with the heathen economically. We can make an exchange with them where we're seeking an economic peace. But we can't do that in, in religious or moral, uh, moral, the moral realm. So we can't do it with them culturally. There is no point of, of cultural uh, truce with the ungodly. The command that Paul gives is to take every thought captive to Christ. Not some, not most, but everyone. And that requires a very different way of thinking. You know, I, I, I've heard people say, you know, I'm not... Uh, I, I, I am... In this or that realm, I'm not a Christian uh, first. But, you know, if you're a Christian, you have to be a Christian first. And, and I say that knowing full well, you know, James Rennick, Covenanter, Martyr Extraordinaire, said of the magistrate that the magistrate is a magistrate as a man and not as a Christian. All he's saying is that Magistracy is founded in dominion and not in grace. It's a principle of nature and not of grace. We understand that. But grace has come to redeem nature. Nature has fallen. And it can't get up. Uh, There's that old commercial where the lady fell over and she couldn't get up. Right? That's where our situation. Man has fallen and can't get up. 
And to make it worse, he doesn't want to get up. At least in that commercial years ago as a kid, I seem to remember the old lady wanted to get up, and she couldn't. But nature, our fallen nature, doesn't even want to get up. It's fallen, and it's happy to be there. And that's not a good place for us to be. Such who engage, who enter, I should say, into such covenants become covenant brethren. Look at 1 Kings 9, 13. 1 Kings 9, verse 13. And he said, What cities are these which thou hast given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Cable unto this day. Yeah, so he calls them my brother. Why? Well, there's a covenant that has been entered into, and they become covenant brethren. They, they're no longer... Um, they're no longer apart. There's not a distance. Now there is a closeness. And this, again, this is why uh, as believers you, you are being uh, told to be very careful about who you marry. Right? You should. Those who marry should marry only in the Lord. Why? Because it's a very near communion. And you don't want to put yourself in a situation if you are a believer where you're now knit together and you have to find common cause with someone who's not. Right? You shouldn't do that purposely. There are people, of course, who, and Paul deals with this, uh, people who are, uh, they, they get married and they're, pa- they're both pagans or whatever, and, and then they one of them is converted. Uh, that's a very different situation. God tends to be merciful. Uh, not always, but very often he's merciful to the people when he converts them in that situation. Uh, but when people enter into this situation and they didn't test the water first, don't expect God to be merciful unless you yourself uh, are going to turn out to be a reprobate, right? Because if God is merciful to you in your wickedness and your sin, it means that there is everlasting wrath being treasured up for you. right? When, you, when you're a believer and you do something wrong, you should be glad that you are stiffly rebuked and that you're drawn back from whatever course. Covenants take away the enmity. Covenants take away the distance. Covenants establish amity. Covenants um, are represent an agreed a common cause <coughs> and a mutual pledge. Like there's a mutual pledge. So your brethren, it's it's an extension of your, uh, you know, in a natural family. It is natural for people in a natural family to try to help one another. That that's part of what your family is trying to do naturally, right? But spiritually speaking, you have an obligation. Uh, and you have an obligation, frankly, to other believers before you do to unbelievers. And you've got an obligation to your family, but your obligation to Christianity, to the truth, uh, that takes precedent. Uh, not exclusive right, but it does take precedent in certain respects. Right? We have to obey God rather than man. You know, as long as the interests of the natural family are not uh, somehow in contest with with um, the true religion, 
we don't have a problem. But very often when you have a family that is um, a family of unbelievers, or primarily unbelievers, there are going to be points of conflict. It's inevitable. And it's at those times that you're going to have to uh, stick to your, your covenant guns, if you will. Um, so you, you can't withdraw from covenant union for any cause, including natural relations. <clears throat> it's a great aggravation of enmity and malice when it is a violation of friendship and of a brotherly covenant. Look at Amos 1 9. Amos 1 verse 9, thus saith the Lord, <coughs> for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. The brotherly covenant. They remembered it not. Again, you have, um, you have these obligations and you have to balance them. And the only reason that they come into conflict is because of sin. But you are never permitted to sin. We're never permitted to do evil that good may come. But there's never an excuse to break the moral law in order to keep the moral law. If you come to a point where you you feel like uh, two moral laws, you know, honor thy father and mother and and you know, remember the Sabbath day, for example, to keep it holy. <clears throat> they're coming into contest. <clears throat> you have to uh, remember that, first of all, God has a higher claim to your allegiance, and secondly, um, the only reason there's going to be or the potential for this rift is there is somebody is in sin. And you're not required to bend your moral obedience to sin. The whole point of this covenant <clears throat> and, and why we need to be careful <clears throat> about with whom we enter into covenant <clears throat> is because we don't want to be in a situation where you know, we're, <clears throat> we're in some uh, uh, relation. We've created some covenant relation <clears throat> where we're going to be required to do something uh, that is against the common cause. Right? Christians should never go into business with unbelievers. Yes, you can have... You can have um, contracts with them to do this or that thing, but when you form partnerships and, and that sort of thing, now it, it's actually beyond a, just a civil contract because for you as a believer all that you do has to be done to the glory of God, and that's not going to be their primary point of reference. You know, you can do work for other people, but you can't work with other people in a contractual, you know, a, a partnership situation without being harmed by that. And it just doesn't work. 
the, the fact is, at the end of the day, and I, I think I said this some time ago when we talked about voluntary associations, the only common cause you could possibly have with a heathen is a fleshly cause. The, the, the sinful desires of your own wicked nature because they don't understand anything else. Right? They are not wise to do what's good. They don't understand it. They don't get it. So this violation, did we, we read Leviticus 26? Great judgments. Calls for great judgments from the Lord. <clears throat> Leviticus 26, 25. Leviticus 26, verse 25. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. And when you are gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. <clears throat> God has a an avenging sword for the quarrel of the covenant. Right? Why? Remember, every covenant, when you enter into these agreements, and, and, and you know, covenant, you know, not every covenant. Um, is is explicit, you know, written down, spelled out, and uh, otherwise, um, you know, set forth in in great detail, and you know, you're consciously going to be a signatory to, to it, like the Solemn League. Uh, but people do covenant, you know, when you enter into an agreement, a verbal agreement. Uh, for common cause. It can begin to take on the nature of a covenant. I mean, these guys in the Old Testament were probably not writing everything down on parchment and, and taking it to the magistrate and having, you know, some seal, wax seal put on it. They're giving their word. Uh, but there's there's an understanding that that they're asking God to be witness. Well, that's fine when there is um, some sort of an exchange which does does not have uh, a, a necessary moral or, or religious dimension to it. Okay, but that really does limit where and when and how you can enter into these kinds of, of um, agreements with other people when they're unbelievers. And, and by the way, you, you know, given the fact that the state of the church is in such disarray, uh, I would say don't just limit it to other unbelievers. You should be asking what other professing believers actually believe. The more I hear people talk, uh, the more I wonder, you know, about a lot of this. I mean, there's an example... Uh, this, you know, this uh, past week or two, where uh, some celebrity endorsed Bible reading for Focus on the Family, and then, uh, you know, allegedly discovers that oh well they're opposed to sodomy. Well, I I thought that was the de facto Christian position, but this guy I guess didn't think that, and nobody thought to ask before they entered into this agreement, and now. Both parties end up looking like morons, frankly. Um, but what's worse is uh, this guy, you know, comes out and, and he, he looks worse than a moron. He looks like an apostate. He, he's talking like an apostate. 
He's backpedaling from the Bible. He's demeaning and belittling the Bible. It, it was a disgusting display. It would have never happened, however, if they hadn't entered into these kinds of agreements. And there was some kind of, of covenant that went on, but it was in a context which was beyond just a simple, you know, I'm going to um, install the refrigerator for you and I'll be leaving. Uh, it had to do with a moral slash religious dimension. Right? We're going to advocate Bible reading and, and uh, all of that. This is exactly why Bible societies, you might say, well, what could possibly be wrong with joining a Bible society, a voluntary association like that? Because you have apostates like this guy who are part of this organization. You know, they're, they're going to be part of that. You have these kinds of people. They're all over the place. They don't even know what they believe religiously. And so we don't enter into these voluntary associations, uh, vol you know, anything voluntary for moral or, or religious reform, uh, even something as admirable as promoting Bible reading can end up putting you in league, covenant, with people who really don't even believe the Bible, right? They have something else going on. Again, it'd be very different if we lived in a society where we had a national religion, we had a, a you know a Christian government. Uh, yeah, is everybody there going to be genuinely Christian? No. Okay, there there are going to be tears among the wheat. But the point is that the administration is going to be tending toward and confirming the religion, the true religion, the religion of God's elect people. The question three, are we permitted to make the faction to the contrary party? <clears throat> so, not just withdrawing now, uh, this idea of defecting the contrary party. It says no, First John 2.19. 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. Yeah, and this gets into something, you've heard me quote this on different occasions, that James R. Wilson said, you know, those who are advancing require gentleness. Those who are departing merit even severe rebuke. That's from his... Uh, book on the atonement from 1817 in his preface um, and he's right about that uh, we we have one stance and you know we should take one position with people who are coming out of a situation and advancing reforming becoming better uh, we, we look at their their track record with regard to churches for example and you know, they've, they've been moving in a positive direction. We need to be patient and kind and helpful with those people. But, you know, people who have had their eyes open, they've been here, they've seen it all, and they reject it, they are of the spirit of Antichrist, and you should have nothing to do with them. It is just positively wickedness, right? When you close your eyes to the truth and you depart from the truth, there's no more room for mercy, grace, or even the milk of human kindness. 
They deserve, they merit even severe rebuke. Shouldn't put up with that nonsense. Right? It's ungodly, and they should know it. And if they try to deny it, they're 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 shucking and jiving, right? They're 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 trying to to they're trying to deceive themselves. And what's more, they want you to buy into the lie they're telling themselves. And you shouldn't go along with it. You shouldn't cater to it. You should in no wise roll over for it. Right? The spirit of Antichrist. It was one thing, and the reformers dealt with people coming out of the Roman church. They were patient. They were kind. But when people went back to Rome, they not only had nothing to do with them, they would, if, if they could, persecute them. Right? Because there's nothing good about them. They should be driven out. They don't belong in polite society, let alone Christian society. Those that apostatize from religion sufficiently indicate that before they were hypocrites in religion. Those who've imbibed the spirit of gospel truth have a good preservative against destructive error. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Yeah, the, the, again, the direction, and sometimes it takes a little bit of time to see, direction is everything. Which direction people are going. You know, sometimes people wobble and we need to be patient with that, but when they, when they make good their apostasy, what they're showing you is they were hypocrites with respect to true religion all along. And hypocrites need to be unmasked. They shouldn't be, you know, and you shouldn't tolerate them, you know, trying to tell you uh, this or that. They're li hypocrites are, by their very nature, liars. They're congenital liars. And the, the lie, the truth has no place in the lie, and the truth has no quarter for the lie. All you that love the Lord hate evil. If you have the spirit of the gospel, and you're abiding in it, um, to the extent and to the degree that you're abiding in it, you have signs of your election that ought, you ought to be taking hold of them. You ought to be improving that. You know, the new creature, think about this, um, and, and I don't, don't want you to uh, misunderstand in, in terms of, um, you know, the, uh, the Wesleyan perfectionists and the the, uh, the Oberlinites uh, of the 19th century who believed that you could reach a stage of, of sinless perfection. But the fact is this, the new creature that is wrought in you, if you're regenerate, does not sin. That's why John can say that, you know, there is no sin in the people of God. Because new nature doesn't sin. The problem is not your new nature. The problem is uh, 
this process of sanctification, you're tethered to this old nature, and this old nature wants to sin. Again, covenanting is about your new nature, uh, giving your new nature the upper hand in this battle to destroy and defeat the old nature. Those who make defection to the contrary party call forth the curse of the covenant. Ezekiel 20, verse 37. Ezekiel 20, verse 37. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Yeah, I'll cause you to pass under the rod. He's talking about the curse of the covenant in this verse, in these verses around us. Uh, and so, when you when you break with the covenant, when you uh, when you defect from the party of true religion, uh, by definition, defecting from the party of true religion means you are falling into false religion again. <clears throat> and when you do that, uh, if you do that, uh, you are not simply at that point an errorist or uh, you're not simply someone who is outside of the church. You are now a known, defined enemy of the truth because you should know the truth. And if you've made defection from that truth, you're calling forth the curse of the covenant. This is exactly why the church has to discipline people. The church doesn't discipline people uh, when they fall into certain you know, egregious habitual sins uh, if the church doesn't deal with these situations, it's inviting the curse on the whole covenant community because the congregation, each congregation, um, forms a, a covenant community. Right? And so you, you have to put distance between yourself and the person who's going to fall under the rod of God if you don't want everyone getting whipped with that rod. And, and this is why, uh, when we get toward the end of this article, you are pledged not only you're, you're to reform yourself, but if there's some situation that you can't, you're to discover it in hopes that someone can. You're not to hide it. Right? You're not, you can't allow some unreformed, defective situation to go on without trying to bring it into uh, amendment. So if you know something, uh, you you know you have an obligation. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But anyway, the words of the covenant shall not fall to the ground. Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-five. Deuteronomy thirty-two, <coughs> verse thirty-five. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Yes, Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-five tells us that. <clears throat> the, the covenant, uh, there are blessings and there are cursings, right? There, uh, the covenant has two sides. <clears throat> For those who press in and are obedient, there are blessings. For those who draw back and are disobedient, there are threatenings and curses. And, and this tells you the words of the covenant are not falling to the ground. That is, they're not going unanswered. By the way, this verse, uh, in due time their foot shall slide. Uh, this is the, um, the text that was famously used by um, Jonathan Edwards' uh, his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In due time their foot shall slide. 
If we do not by our obedience qualify ourselves for the blessings of it, we shall by our disobedience bring ourselves under the curses of it. Jeremiah 11, 8 to 11. Jeremiah 11, verses 8 through 11. <clears throat> Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every one in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. And the Lord said unto me, a Conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words. And they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. <coughs> so, think about this. <clears throat> all around Israel, all of the nations are idolaters. God's dealing with them, however he's dealing with them. But the idolaters that really uh, get the, the expression of the divine anger and wrath are idolaters who are found amongst the people of Israel. People who should have been redeemed from that idolatry. People who should have been drawn back from that once and for all. Uh, when they return, as Peter says, it's like it's like a, a pig returning to the mire. Right, question four. May we give ourselves over to, to neutrality in the cause of the covenant? Again, the answer is no. Acts 18, 12 to 17. Acts 18, verses 12 through 17. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O you Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names, and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of those things. <coughs> so, <coughs> when faced with the truth, the worst position is actually indifference. Right? Jesus, when he's talking to the churches in Revelation, says, I wish you were either hot or cold, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out. Right, that indifference, indifference to the truth, is actually the most disrespectful position you can take to the truth when you're indifferent to it. And plenty of people show their indifference all the time because they just simply don't see the point. What's all this stuff you, you guys keep talking about? You you want to cross this theological T and dot that theological I? Why do you care about this? Why do you care about that? These are points, let me explain. These are points which have been identified, contended for, and contending against certain errors and heresies from ages past. All right? All we're doing is setting to the seal that these things are true. Okay? We're, we're in a position of bearing testimony that was handed down to us. No one asked me if I wanted to spend all my time talking about <clears throat> things like political dissent or 
voluntary associations uh, or you know regulative principle issues or any of these other things my life would have been a lot easier probably would have gone a lot more pleasant uh, at least at certain points it would have been a much more pleasant thing had I not been required to uphold this testimony but you see here's the thing this all happened before I was born before you were born these points were put into contention because you had people agitating in the church and once these things are in contention and there's been an answer given and a position resolved and, and a point taken and it's been spelled out and then you have people who die for it you're never going to be in a position to say it was unimportant you're never going to be in a position to say well maybe you know we could have left that one out Keep in mind, in the, in the great body of truth for which we have to contend, there are always going to be some things which are going to be the least points, right? Not everything is going to be the doctrine of the Trinity. <coughs> and not every lesser point, uh, in the end, will turn out to be as little a point as maybe we thought it was. So, we need to go forward. We need to be careful that we're not indifferent. Indifference in the cause of God is truth is always a detestable thing. Look at Matthew 12, verse 30. Matthew 12, verse 30. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Yes, yeah, so you're either gathering or scattering. There's no in-between. You're either with Christ or you're against him. There's no in-between. There's no neutrality. It's not on judgment day. There is not going to be a big party, contrary to the Romish view, of people who are going to be in purgatory. Right? Judgment Day, you will get your assignment seat in heaven or hell. Well, it won't quite be heaven or hell. It's going to be the eternal state, but it'll be the equivalent of eternal damnation or eternal glory. <clears throat> there are two great interests on foot in the world with one or the other of which all the children of men are siding. Look at Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3, verse 15. <coughs> and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Yeah, so there, there are only two sides. I know uh, people like to think that there are this, this is vast plethora of options, right? Uh, and just push... Push whatever button you want to add to your definition of truth. Uh, but the fact is, it, everything is either true or false. Right? There are only two parties in the world. The, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's no in-between ground. There's no middling seed. There are wheat and there are tares in the, in the parable. There's not some third hybrid sort of thing. There's no third option. And you're going to side with one or the other throughout your life. You're going to side with one or the other. 
and you will stand at the end having sided with one or the other. Right? You, you, when you die, it is fixed. At that point, it's done. So this idea that we would be neutral. You know, when I hear people say, well, I, I'm spiritual. I don't really think about this. And, you know, when I die, I'll, I'll find out. You know, let, let me tell you, the neutrality, neutrality is actually siding with the seed of the serpent. Right? Neutrality is the other point of view. It's not some middle ground. You know, you're, there's no neutral territory. The interest of sin and wickedness is the devil's interest. And all wicked people side with that interest. The interest of truth and holiness is God's interest, with which all godly people side. And it is a case that will not admit a neutrality. Look at is, uh, Exodus uh, 32, 21 and 26 in Joshua uh, five thirteen. Exodus thirty two verse twenty one. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And verse twenty six. And Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Joshua five verse thirteen. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And, jo and Joshua went, went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? <clears throat> yeah, again, there's not a middle ground, right? Art thou for us or for our adversaries? <clears throat> there's no third choice. Nowhere in the Bible are you going to find this third choice. It, it, you have to you have to take sides you have to align yourself you don't have a choice right, other than that and people generally uh, they do what they want to do right, so naturally speaking naturally speaking you're going to want to side with the seed of the serpent I don't even have to uh, look in the book very far to find out that's going to be your natural disposition. A fallen man naturally is inclined to every kind of moral depravity. And so you will naturally find yourself um, sympathetic, comfortable, happy uh, when you are surrounded by all of that stuff. Right? You, you worldly people like worldlings. They like to hang out, you know, with the pagans. They like to hang out, you know, in in, in uh, crowds full of heathen. And the more the heathen rage, the more they enjoy it. Godly, on the other hand, we're told have a very different approach, uh, and it's not because of anything in them naturally. It's what God has worked in them supernaturally, right? That He's wrought in them by His Spirit, His Word and Spirit working in them, both to will and do His good pleasure. 
uh, so that there is something in you working out the fear of God and the salvation of God if you're a believer. <clears throat> so this idea that we can be neutral, well, you can chalk up neutrality is just another way <clears throat> of apostatizing without uh, without being loud and obnoxious about it, right? And and yet there's there's actually something more disturbing there. Right? People want to apostatize quietly. Uh, they're in some respects I would describe them as the most lost. You know the the loudest professing atheists and depraved people. Uh, very often, if you look at the case of Jesus in the Gospels, who, who are those people who are coming to him? You know, there are either people who were uh, like some of the, the uh, disciples and apostles, uh, people who were raised in the religion and and got the right idea, and they follow him, or it's you know the the harlots and the publicans and the drunkards and people like that, right? So it's the people who are either cold or hot but the lukewarm the religious leaders of the day people who are comfortable people who um, are accepting of, of the general religious milieu what's going on around them uh, those people are the ones who are being lost you know. <clears throat> question five should we zealously and constantly continue in the cause of the covenant against all opposition? The answer is yes. Look at Proverbs 28.1. Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Yeah, the, the righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous have to be bold as a lion. A cowardly Christian who is afraid to profess the doctrines or practice the duties of the gospel must expect that Christ will be ashamed of him another day. Look at Mark eight thirty eight. Mark eight verse thirty eight. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Yeah, and, and there's there's something there's something um, unseemly un untoward even about effeminate ministers and and um, uh, Christians who want to apologize for being Christians particularly in the face of a society which is so hostile to real Christianity and hates true religion and they want to blame it all on the disciples of Christ they want to say oh if Jesus were here I would love him but I don't like his church no, the fact is, those are exactly the people who would have crucified him if he were here. They'd do it all over again. Because Jesus was not given over to this detestable neutrality. He wasn't someone who was uh, receding and constantly apologizing for speaking the truth. He really didn't care when he offended the scribes and the Pharisees, he didn't care that they had a lot of power, political power. It didn't really bother him. He had other concerns. 
know, if, if Christians were bold, a lot of it, it really wouldn't take very many to turn the situation around. Jesus had, what, 12 apostles, and they turned the world upside down. Okay, you need 12 people who are really bold, and you could probably reverse everything. Doesn't take a lot. But as long as we keep nurturing up generation after generation to be sort of the Casper Milk Toast Christian, uh, sitting back and, you know, afraid of this and afraid of that, you know, they've, they've, there's, it's pathetic. Uh, the church, the church, if you see the statistics, uh, the divorce rate in the church is no different from the divorce rate in the world. Uh, there are probably more people on psychotropic drugs in the churches than in the world, right? On, on uh, this or that sort of medication for depression and for anxiety and for all of these other things. They don't need to be drugged. They need to be slapped across the face and told to stand up and behave themselves, quit themselves like men. And stop behaving... I mean, can you imagine David going before Goliath and, and, and you know, figuratively speaking, uh, soiling his armor or his, 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 you know, loincloth or whatever, right? I mean, that's what these people remind me of. They're always apologizing. They're always backing off. They're backing down. Every time somebody comes back at them, they want to back down. Goliath, David doesn't do that. He's just a little fella. Goliath is a big, huge guy. And he goes out and says, what? He says, I come out to you in the name of the Lord, and I intend to knock your head right off your shoulders. That wasn't a pleasant, you know, introduction. He wasn't trying to win the guy over to the cause of true religion. He viewed him as he was indeed. He had already showed himself to be this Goliath. Right? He's an enemy of the true religion, and David is going to take him out. Look, Phineas is commended and blessed for his zeal in the cause of the true religion in his day. Numbers 25, 11 to 13. Numbers 25, verses 11 through 13. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore, say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Yeah, what, what did Phineas do? Do you remember what he did? You had, you had um, one of the Israelites fornicating with one of the Canaanites. Right? And Phineas walks in to stay the plague of the Lord, and he puts a spear through both of them and pins them to the ground, kills them both right there in the middle of their fornicating. This is probably why you don't see a lot of WWPD bracelets on people. What would Phineas do? Because this generation is so inept and cowardly and sissified. And this is exactly why real men generally are driven away from Christianity today. In the last 150 years, the church has largely become uh, the, the province of, of uh, women and effeminate men. And most men just find the whole situation appalling. 
they're never given good counsel. You know, the counsel is always to tone down being a male. The, the counsel is always to become more effeminate. And that's exactly what you should expect from a society which is shot through with feminism. <clears throat> but real, true religion is not that way. It's definite. It gives a certain sound. It understands that we're in a war, and in a war there will be casualties. We can't spend our time crying all every time somebody gets shot around you. You know, when you're in a battle, if you stop to have a, a, a quiet moment where you have to sob and console yourself, uh, you'll, you're never going to get anything done. It's a battle. It's a it's war. Right? Let the women bury the dead. <clears throat> Question six. Should we promote the covenant against all impediments according to our power all the days of our lives? The answer is yes. In Ezra 10, 1 to 5, and 2 Chronicles 29, 10. Ezra 10, verses 1 through 5. Now on Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of the Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. And Shechaniah the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee, we also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. Then arose Ezra and made the chief priests and the Levites and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word, and they swear. Second Chronicles 29, verse 10. Now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Yeah, well, the thing that we should be fearing is not the face of men. The fact is... We should be sufficiently fearful and reverencing of God that we take very seriously uh, the the obligations which have been bound upon the church and and the nation. Um, are there going to be impediments? Yes. Uh, do we face, in some respects, greater impediments? than they did at the time they took the covenant. <clears throat> well, let me let me say this on, on that. It may seem that way, but when you consider that you had so many people who were so zealous for the time, uh, and, and yet things got derailed at that time, I would say that they must have faced much more serious spiritual obstacles and impediments. And they didn't give up. You know, some of them did, but they didn't all give up, right? There, there wouldn't, there wouldn't have been uh, a Reformed Presbyterian Church if they had all just given up. Those that are duly sensible of the terrors of the Lord will do all they can in their places to promote religion and encourage all the methods of reconciliation for the turning away of God's wrath. First Chronicles twenty-one eighteen to twenty-four. First Chronicles 21, verses 18 through 24. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David, 
that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornai and the Jebusite. David went up at the saying of God, which he spake in the name of the Lord. And Ornan turned back and saw the angel, and his four sons hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat, and as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David, and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar therein unto the Lord, that thou shalt grant it me for the full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee, and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for burnt offerings, and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meat offering. I gave, I give it all. And King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price, for I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. Yeah, so, <clears throat> when we say that we're going to, being duly sensible to the terrors of the Lord, we're going to do all we can, again, it's with respect to our places and callings, right? So, magistrates are going to have one, one um, realm in which to exercise themselves to see that, that these impediments are overcome. Ministers another, uh, and, and fathers in, in their homes, something else altogether. But what do they all have to do? They all have to maintain order. They all have to maintain peace. They all have to maintain um, a, a sense of command that they can command those under them that they hear and that they obey the gospel, that they are, in fact, very forward to hear, that they are very, uh, very much engaged to, to put into practice what they hear. Right? It, it's necessary for the turning away of God's wrath. It was the happiness of Israel that they had among them such a considerable body of men who were obliged by their office to promote and keep up religion among them. First Chronicles uh, 23, 4, and 5. First Chronicles 23, verses 4 and 5. Of which 20 and 4,000 were to set forward the work of the house of the Lord, and 6,000 were officers and judges. Moreover, 4,000 were porters, and 4,000 praised the Lord with the instruments which I made, said David, to praise therewith. Yeah, is, is, everything about Israel was designed to order and promote the true religion in church and in state. Right? And from the families right up to the king. From the fathers of families right up to the king. <clears throat> Everything is, is ordered in that way and everyone is placed within that order. Nobody is suffered to just run amok right, and do their own thing and and uh, you know they they're not going to allow them all to be uh, uh, professing whatever they want to profess or worshiping however they want to worship and carrying on and you know doing this and doing that just because they want to. There's an eye to the glory of God in everything that's going on in Israel. And this, by the way, in contrast to all the heathen nations around them. The heathen nations 
you know, they, they, um, the Greeks sought after wisdom. It's not in and of itself a, a horrible pursuit. But the Jews knew when they were attentive to the teaching of Moses and the prophets, they knew that they were to attend to the glory of God. So all the impediment, any impediment, you know, if you're if you're a father, there are impediments that you can remove. You can remove them through discipline, through catechizing, through ordering of your house. If you're a minister, you know, through the the um, the preaching of the word and through the administration of sacraments and discipline. There are ways that have been set up. If you are, and, and catechizing as well there, uh, and, and then if you're the, uh, the magistrate, right, you have other matters of civil order. And you should be giving your authority to the support of the true religion. right? Lending your support and giving example. Setting an example and a tone. <clears throat> Those do the greatest good to their country that lay out themselves in their places to promote religion. Second Chronicles 24, 15, and 16. Second Chronicles 24, verses 15 and 16. But Jehoiada waxed old and was full of days when he died, and 130 years old was he when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and toward his house. <clears throat> yeah, so, it, it's worthy of remembrance. It's worthy of note. And there's, there's nothing wrong. In fact, um, uh, during the time of the Westminster Assembly, there were, uh, on occasion, uh, there were some very prominent supporters of the covenanted cause of truth and religion who died. And while, um, while the Reformed churches have uh, historically, they, they've shunned the idea of a funeral sermon, uh, that is a sermon that is all tied up with eulogizing the, the deceased, um, they, they did on other days... Uh, other than the day of burial a lot of times, uh, they would preach sermons uh, illustrative of the lives of these people uh, to remember them, to honor them, and to point out all of the things that they did on behalf of the true religion. Uh, it's a good thing to remember, you know, when people have been forward to help the church and, and people of God, when they've been very forward in the cause of true religion. It's a good thing to remember them, to give... Uh, to, to honor their memory. And I would say that if you can do that in that respect, there's, there's some of that that is certainly um, warrantable in, in a nation. Right? There are people who are particularly important to a nation. Um, but we, we need to make sure that it's all in due subordination to the, um, uh, the principles of the true religion. Uh, and and even even in the case of while the Reformed churches did not allow for funeral sermons per se, they did allow ministers uh, to speak 
suitable words to the occasion at the time of interment, although they, they um, really were very careful to forbid and uh, uh, avoid any kind of um, uh, praying or, or singing or, or even uh, preaching the word around the body because of all the superstitions of Rome. Uh, so, you know, there, there's there's a balance. We, we, we do understand that there's good that people have done uh, in their families, in the, in the church, in a country, um, and the best good that anyone can do in any of those conditions is to promote the true religion. Like it's the best thing that you could do against all impediment. Anyway, let's move on to question seven. <clears throat> Should we reveal that which we cannot suppress or overcome, that it might be prevented in a timely fashion? The answer is yes. We're going to look at first at Esther 7, 1 to 6. Esther 7, verses 1 through 6. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen, and the king said again unto Esther on the, sec on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted thee? And what is thy request, and it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom? Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he, and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen, and the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make requests for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Yeah, so Esther doesn't just sit back and take the position that, you know, it's none of my business. Uh, it wouldn't have affected her in all likelihood. Right? She didn't have to reveal that she was part of those people <clears throat> and uh, uh, even even as wicked as Haman was it's unlikely he would have attempted uh, to do anything to undermine her in the eyes of the king she and her family could have escaped could have done uh, they could have done well for themselves I suppose um, but she doesn't do that. She's very careful to to make her petition, to, to make known, to reveal what she can't suppress or overcome herself. She doesn't have the power to do it, doesn't lie within her, her um, ability, and she doesn't simply conclude from that that, well, there's nothing here, let's keep moving. Right? She concludes from that that I need to go higher. Uh, she concludes from that, remember, you know, the, as, as Mordecai tells her uh, a couple of times, you know, how do you know uh, that uh, for such a time as this you weren't promoted to this position? You didn't come into this way. And, um, of course, the answer is uh, that's exactly why she was there. Right? That turns out to be exactly what uh, what was behind all of that 
and um, we're not we're not to try to cover our sins or the sins of others. Uh, the Lord accounts those that stand by in silence equal in guilt to those committing the offenses. Psalm 50 verse 18. Psalm 50 verse 18. When thou sawest the thief, then thou consentest with him and hast been partaker with adulterers. <clears throat> yeah, so think about what, what is being said here. When you cover for someone, and this is particularly true, uh, you know, this is one of these things that um, fornicators very often do. They, it's a secret sin and they cover for one another, right? Uh, they, they don't, because nobody wants to come out and admit this or what have you. But when, when it's covered up, it never, it, it never resolves itself. There's always going to be problems coming out of that. Um, and, and so, you know, it's like that with really any kind of sin <clears throat> that you can cover. <clears throat> if you hide it, you're not going to prosper in it. You need to get to a point where you are open and, and with, you know, in, in, a, in a proper context, uh, confessing these things so that you can move beyond it, right? You, you're doing that. You're revealing what you can't suppress or overcome. I mean, the, the quickest way to stop most sins that are being committed secretly is to make it public and to, um, uh, to request accountability. You know, to be to be brought to a point where someone you're going to have to tell someone you're going to have to uh, give an account. You're you're not going to continue uh, to go down that road, right? The 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 fact is, when people are are generally speaking, when people are you know sneaky and secretive and and all of that, uh, what they're doing is they're fueling some one or more sins. They're feeding it. They're feeding something that's not quite right. I'm not talking about keeping back, you know, the secret for Coca-Cola so that Pepsi doesn't get it. I'm talking about, you know, when people generally are, are behaving in a, in a way... Most things don't need to be kept secret. Right? Um... <clears throat> If your natural inclination is to be secretive, there's probably some moral turpitude going on. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you need to be out declaring everything you do, like some of these people who feel the need to tell you every time they eat or use the bathroom uh, on you know some of the social media. Right? That's that's sort of the opposite extreme. We're not talking about that. But we're talking about. Uh, you know, this secretiveness. But the psalmist takes that secretiveness now one step further, doesn't he? He says, if you know somebody stole something and you don't reveal it, you are a thief just like them. You're complicit in that. You're in that conspiracy now. You, know, you have the, the, the moral inside information and you are suppressing it. You are guilty along with that other person. You fall under that. 
to to a certain extent, by the way, um, civil law works this way. And if you if you knew someone was either committed a crime or they were going to commit a crime, and you don't report it, and it comes out that you knew, either in advance or after the fact, uh, you are in fact considered to be a co-conspirator. That's not a wrong thing for you know the the civil magistrate to conclude. God concludes that. You know, there's the, the the desire to remain silent about these things is a matter of innate moral turpitude. It's you, you, there's a there's a moral a morally disruptive um, force at work. It, it's your fallen nature, and it's feeding. Right until you get that out of the way, you're feeding your fallen nature. And you shouldn't be. You should be choking it out. You should be uh, mortifying the flesh. Instead of reproving him and witnessing against him, as those should do that declare God's statutes, there's a silent approval of his practices. You know, and again, this is, uh, by the way, this is a problem, I think, a lot of times parents who've in their lives committed certain sins, they see it in their children, and they don't want to rebuke it in their children. They don't want to to um, stand against it. They don't want to take a hard line against it. You know, it's that same attitude. You're really covering for them. You know, you, you don't believe that what they're doing is really that bad, and, and maybe what you're really saying is, maybe what you did wasn't really that bad. Right? Maybe it wasn't the, that kind of horrible moral infraction. You should be ready to denounce it, right? To denounce the sin to the world. Get it out of the way. Don't make excuses for it. And certainly, you know, if you excuse it in someone else, uh, what you're telling me, uh, from what the Bible is saying here, is you're actually excusing it yourself. Right? That's really what you're doing. Because at the end of the day, all sinful interest is self-interest. And this is a sinful interest. You know, so you're, you're, you don't want to report the thief because you have larceny in your heart. You've, you've either stolen or you think about stealing. You know, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, maybe someday I'm going to do that. Well, I don't want people to go hard on me. Try the other approach. Try the hardline approach. Right? I want people to go hard on me when I when I uh, do these things. Why? Because I, you know, my sinful nature needs to be put on notice that it's going to be whacked with a baseball bat to get into line if it starts to get out of line. You know, it, it, we we are naturally inclined to that to this depravity. And only slowly and gradually by the Spirit working according to the Word of God do we become sanctified and move further and further away from that position. But we need to be restrained. And, and, and all the structures in our lives, whether it's family or church or, or the civil magistrate, they're all there really, they're all in their own way different types of restraints and constraints to direct us. So those who do this 
Unto them, God administers a stinging rebuke if we look at Psalm 50, verse 16. Psalm 50, verse 16. But unto the wicked, God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? Yeah, if you're going to say, I'm a covenanter, you're going you're gonna to be um, lenient toward these other people, right? You're, you're going to cut them some slack, blah, blah, blah. Um, God says, what, what business do you have taking my covenant in your mouth? Your heart, your heart is really engaged with. Remember, there are only two sides. Your heart's really engaged with the seed of the serpent. Like, what are you thinking? What are you, who are you trying to fool? You're not fooling God, right? But choose you this day whom you who, whom you will serve. But if it's going to be the Lord, it means you have to do it all, right? It, it's not in parts. God doesn't want part of your heart. He says, give me your whole heart. Again, I refer you to that uh, that seal that Calvin has with his heart in his hand. And it says, give me thine heart. Alright, the last question. Question 8. <clears throat> Ought all of this to be done as in the sight of God? And uh, the answer is yes. Look at 1 Timothy 6.13. 1 Timothy 6, verse 13, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. And it, again, the reason for saying we're doing this as in the sight of God is precisely because all covenanting is a taking hold of the covenant of grace and calling God to be witness. Right? So everything we do with respect to you know, covenant keeping or covenant breaking, we're doing as in the sight of God. We should be conscious of this. We should be thinking about this. There's nothing you're going to do when the lights are out or when you're alone that God doesn't see. And, and sometimes, again, you know, what you do can affect the whole congregation of the people of God. Remember the case of Achan? You know, they, the Israelites go out and they're defeated miserably, miserably defeated. And then they, they realize, well, that, that shouldn't have happened. That wasn't slated to happen. Why did, why did we get whooped? What happened? They begin to make inquiry. begin to pray about it. They begin to seek and then they find that Achan, you know, had stolen some things that were really to be uh, consecrated to, to uh, the Lord uh, in, in, a, in a previous um, previous uh, battle, pillaging. If Achan had just done what he was supposed to do, as to the sight of God, he would have known he, he's not going to get away with this. But it's going to come out. And so all of the sins which are in the church eventually are going to come out. They're all going to come to light. Everything is going to come out. You know, and the only question really is, is it going to come out, you know, voluntarily? You've you know, you're revealing, making known, confessing, and so on, or are you going to allow the church to get 
you know, slammed again and again and again until you are ready to make your confession or whatever. Again, if we did all we do in the, as in the sight of God, we would certainly minimize behaving and doing those kinds of things that would be bringing down curses and judgments on ourselves and potentially, you know, on, on those around us. Right? We're commanded to do all that we do is in the sight of God with an eye to His glory. First Corinthians 10... 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Yeah, so how much more then ought we to be conscious of this when prosecuting the ends of his ordinance of covenant? Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that he doeth such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? Yeah, shall he break the covenant and be delivered? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Covenant breakers are not going to be delivered in their covenant breaking or by their covenant breaking. But you're not you don't get out of the obligation of covenant by breaking it. You only bring yourself under curses. You only cause more grief and aggravation. There's a reason why um, those who depart from the truth, uh, very often uh, their afflictions are not like the afflictions that other people face. Right? When people depart from the truth, very often God afflicts them in signal ways that sometimes are particularly uh, horrible. And it, the reason for this is they are covenant breakers and they must be pursued by the avenging sword of the covenant. Right. So again, how do we avoid this? How do we avoid falling under this kind of condemnation uh, or judgment? Do everything you do as if you're doing it in the sight of God because you are. Right? Particularly when we're talking about people who are in covenant with God um, and you know you know it. It's bad enough to be in covenant with God and not know it, but when you know it and then you continue to uh, depart from the way. It's just uh, all kinds of additional uh, you know curses that are coming. You can't break the covenant and expect to prosper. You're not going to prosper. In fact, everything is going to fall to pieces, right? Um, and, and, and if you don't repent, you're going to be, finally, you'll, you'll be cut off in your sins. Right? That's the way it is. And so, in 1643, when they're taking the Psalm of Covenant, you have a lot of people, very high-ranking people, uh, people who are well-connected in, in the civil estate uh, or in the church, they're all taking this covenant. They're all pursuing one end. And they're all, at this point now, reminding one another and themselves that once we raise our hands to take this covenant, we need to be extra mindful of the fact that everything we're doing is as in the sight of God because we just took this covenant in His name, by His name. Right? We're going to what are we going to do? Take his name in vain? And you think you're going to take God's name in vain and prosper? No. 
All right, so the last thing we're going to be looking at with respect to Psalm League and Covenant is the conclusion, the conclusionary paragraph, and that's that'll be our topic next time. So Lord willing, next time we will conclude talking about the Psalm League and Covenant.